Our sermon text this morning will come from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. May it be a lamp to our feet, a light to our paths, and strength to our lives as we love and serve others in the power of the Holy Spirit, and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Everyone loves a good underdog story. And as much as it pains me to say this, this is doubly bad today. Like, I'm not even talking about the game yesterday. But being an Alabama fan, I have to admit that one of the great underdog stories is the movie Rudy, about a kid whose dream is to play for the University of Notre Dame football team. Rudy is undersized, he's slow, he's poor, and he doesn't make good grades. It's not a good combination if you want to play for Notre Dame. Still, what he lacks in these tangible elements Rudy more than makes up for in heart and determination. So we watch as Rudy overcomes obstacle after obstacle in order to achieve his dream. And so in the final moments during the last home game of the season, and with Notre Dame winning the game by a pretty good margin, Rudy enters the game. His team is cheering him on. His family, who has repeatedly told him to give up on his dream, there they are cheering him on. And the whole stadium, aware of this underdog story, is cheering him on. The opposing team hikes the ball. Quarterback drops back to pass. And Rudy, in the only play he ever played for Notre Dame, breaks through the line and sacks the quarterback. The crowd goes wild. The Notre Dame players go wild. And, and the teammates, they rush over to him. They pick him up and put him on their shoulders and carry him off the field. Now that is an underdog story. But what is truly fascinating about the story is that Rudy did not score the game-winning touchdown. His big play, his moment in the sun, was not a significant play of the game. It did not determine the outcome at all. In the big picture, his sacking of the quarterback was kind of meaningless, at least in terms of the game itself. But it wasn't meaningless to Rudy, and it wasn't meaningless to his family, his teammates, or the countless fans who were invested in this underdog in his story. The outcome of the game had already been determined, but Rudy's part was still crucial to the bigger story. Now, this is similar to the situation that we find the church encountering in Acts. Pentecost has just happened. The Spirit has been poured out on the disciples. They are speaking in tongues, proclaiming the mighty works of God in foreign languages. And then Peter preaches, and 3,000 come to faith and are baptized. 
This is the beginning of the church. And it starts off with a bang. All of Jerusalem is stirred up. We're told that all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But remember, Pentecost, that glorious public display that amazed and perplexed everyone, thousands and thousands of people, it was preceded by another event, the ascension of Jesus. The first chapter of Acts describes this moment for us. On top of the Mount of Olives, it's just Jesus and his disciples. That's it. It's the culminating event in Jesus' victory over sin and death. Just 40 days earlier, Jesus had been crucified on a cross, bearing the sins of the world. As 1 Peter 2 tells us, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So in other words, through his death and resurrection, Christ had won the victory. He had defeated sin and death. And he had made us at peace with God. And in the ascension, he had gone up to heaven and taken his place beside the Father as the king of this world. The game was over there. The winning touchdown had been thrown. There was no chance for the other side to make a comeback. So the story of the church, which includes us, it's our story, is one that takes place After the victory has been won. But like Rudy, our part is still crucial to the big picture. This is a theme that happens throughout Scripture over and over. For those that were in Sunday school class, in my Sunday school class this morning, this is what I was referring to in the story of Job. But I would like to highlight this theme in another Old Testament story, in the story of Gideon. Now, Gideon is typically understood as one of the classic underdog stories of the Bible. And he is. But there's more to the story than initially meets the eye. Gideon was the youngest son from the least of the families, from the least of the tribe of Israel. And God did send him with a battalion of just 300 men to defeat the massive armies that were oppressing Israel. But in order to really understand the story, we have to go back to the reason why Israel was oppressed in the first place. Judges chapter 6 begins like this. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. So Israel was the cause of their own suffering. We later read what that evil was, that they were worshiping Baal. They were committing idolatry. And notice how long this oppression lasted, seven years. This has two implications. First, it means that there was no rest for them. They had no Sabbath. The seventh year was full of oppression, just like the other six years. But this also means that, then, the rescue happened when? And the eighth year, that is significant. The eighth year, the eighth day, is a sign of resurrection, a sign of new birth. Jesus' resurrection happens on a Sunday, on the eighth day. And in this case, Israel's salvation happens in the eighth year. The eighth year is when Gideon is chosen to lead Israel into battle. Judges 6.11 says this, Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it 
from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Notice that Gideon is called as he is beating out wheat in a wine press, a reference to bread and wine. In the midst of idolatry and oppression, the one chosen to deliver Israel is found preserving bread and wine. Gideon is a true worshiper of the true God of Israel. He does not bow down to Baal as the other Israelites are doing, or even as his father does. Hear what Gideon does next, beginning in verse 25. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull, even the second bull, which is seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on, the, on top of this stronghold in an orderly manner, and take the second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. So Gideon goes in, destroys these false gods. But not only that, he takes the leftovers and creates a new altar to the true God. This is the first battle. But it's not just the first battle Gideon has. It's the primary battle. It's the main event. Before the nations can be defeated, the nations that are oppressing the Midianites, before Israel's culture can be properly restored, a spiritual battle must occur. The false gods must be thrown down, and the worship of the one true God must be reestablished. It's only then that Gideon, with his small army, an army that God whittles down to 300 soldiers, can go out and soundly defeat this massive army of the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons from the east, an army described as numerous as the sand on the seashore. But there's one final detail that I want to highlight before I move on from Gideon. After he has destroyed the idols, but before he goes into battle against these nations with his 300 soldiers, God anoints him. As the armies are assembling against Israel, we read this. So the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and the Abizurites were called together to follow him. The Spirit is given after the primary work of redemption is accomplished. Through the work of a deliverer, the false gods are cast down, the true God is raised up, the Spirit is then given... Then the hostile nations are conquered. Sound familiar? I like how Jim Jordan describes this. He says, After God does his part, man steps in to do his, which involves mopping up the enemies of God and growing in renewed righteousness. Mop-up work. I like it. And this is our story. The story of the church. Jesus has conquered sin and death. But there's still work to be done, work specifically designated for us to do, work that we have actually been anointed to do. That was the reason for Pentecost. But what does this work look like? Well, our sermon text this morning tells us, and I want to show you two important points from this text that can help us understand our role as the church today, the mop-up work that we can do right here in Franklin, Tennessee. Now, both points have to do with a parallel that we find at the beginning 
and then at the end of our text. In verse 42, we read that the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then at the end, in verse 46, we see a similar account. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with the people. Now, the first thing I want to note about this is that these, even though there's similarity here, we're talking about two different situations in two different locations. Verse 42, I believe, is referring to corporate worship, while verse 46 and 47 is referring to what was happening outside of the worship service. In fact, the second one is qualified in terms of its location. It says that it was happening in the temple and in their homes. Now, remember, the Christians were not holding church services in the temple What they were doing is they were going there on a daily basis to pray and to teach their fellow Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Their message was most likely very similar to what Peter preached at Pentecost or what Stephen preached before he was martyred or even what Jesus preached to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Temple worship was still Old Covenant worship. It consisted of sacrifices and Old Covenant rituals. And the Christians were certainly free to participate in these things as needed or desired, but their primary goal in going there was to reveal Christ in the scriptures and in the history of the Jewish people. At this point, many people are responding positively to their message, but as we read through Acts, that's, that's going to change, right? And so what we see is that the first thing the church was doing was gathering for worship which consisted of preaching and teaching the Lord's Supper, praise, and prayer. But it didn't end there. The preaching in the service led to the disciples' teaching in the temple. The breaking of bread in the service led to the breaking of bread in their homes. The thanksgiving in the Eucharist of worship led to thanksgiving in the daily provision of food and home. The fellowship of gathering for worship led to glad and generous hearts among one another in the church. Devotion to prayer in the service led to the praise of God in favor with all the people outside the service. Of course, this is what we saw with Gideon, right? He begins with worship and setting up worship, and then he goes on to his mission. It's what we're doing here today. If we want to be successful out there, we must begin in here. One naturally flows from the other. And that leads to the other thing we need to see about this passage, about this order here. And that's how the first thing informs, explains and informs the second thing. In other other words, what we do in worship sets the pattern for how we are to conduct ourselves outside of worship. And I know I've said this before, but it bears repeating If you want to be a fruitful Christian in your home and in your community, you need to be in corporate worship. If you want to be an effective witness, you need to regularly sit under the preaching of the gospel. If you want to be a hospitable person, you need to regularly partake in the Lord's Supper. If you want to have a productive prayer life, you need to learn how to pray with the body in worship. If you want to be a person who is quick to repent and even quicker to forgive others, 
you need to practice corporate confession with fellow believers. If you want to be full of joy and thanksgiving, you need to sing with the saints. And if you want to bear one another's burdens, to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and mourning with those who are mourning, you must be with the body. Notice it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. They were devoted to the fellowship, to one another. A healthy church is not just a church that has expository preaching or a church that sings the Psalms or even has weekly communion. Those things are very important, but a healthy church is also devoted to one another. A number of weeks ago, when the officers were considering the parameters for our our church location search, the point was made that whatever we do, wherever we go, we must be able to accommodate fellowship meals. Our commitment to fellowship here is a rare thing in today's culture, even amongst other churches. It makes a difference. It says a lot about who we are. There are no perfect churches, of course, and we're under no illusions here that we have it all figured out. But we are a church that is striving to be obedient, to submit ourselves to God's word and how we worship, and to build up the fellowship through the breaking of bread. And I don't say this to pat ourselves on the back or anything like that. My point is simply this, that this is what mop-up duty looks like. In the last few years, we have seen another level of wickedness and persecution against the church. And many have caved to that pressure. Even in our own little slice of the world here in Middle Tennessee, we've seen it. You know, just last week, a brother was taken from his home in front of his family at gunpoint by the FBI for peacefully protesting abortion. It's enraging. It's frustrating. And in some ways, it can make us feel hopeless about our culture and the direction it's going. What can we do? Well, I'll tell you what we can do. It's what we must do. Because we have been anointed to do it. We gather for worship, we pray together, we sing together, and we eat together. Our mission reminds me of the final chapters of The Lord of the Rings. Now, if you're familiar with only the film version, you're probably not going to be familiar with this part of the story. It was left out of the movies, which is a shame because it's such an important part of the story. It's called The Scouring of the Shire. The plot of Lord of the Rings, of course, is the destruction of the evil force that is Sauron, who is corrupting and destroying and enslaving Middle-earth. And the only way to defeat him is for the smallest and the weakest of the good guys, the hobbits, to make this arduous journey through immense danger into the heart of the enemy's land and throw the one ring into the fires of Mordor. So the main plot of this epic story concerns this mission. The hobbits, of course... Complete this mission. Sorry, spoilers for a 100-year-old book here. But um, in, in Sauron, who's the main villain, he's destroyed. His armies are defeated. And things are put back to rights. And you can maybe see why the filmmakers would end the movie there. To have a story where the big bad villain is defeated, but then to close it out with a much smaller, less significant battle seems a little anticlimactic, right? But Tolkien was very intentional when he wrote The Scouring of the Shire. 
Sure, the main enemy had been defeated, but there's still work to be done. When the hobbits return to the Shire, they find it overrun by minions of Sauron, and they're abusing and oppressing the, the other hobbits in the Shire. And so the hobbits, who have been a part of this epic conquest of evil in Middle-earth, well, they're now equipped to lead their fellow hobbits against this leftover evil, which they do. It's mop-up work, but it's crucial to the story. The primary enemy had been defeated, but there was still work to be done. Now, much like those small, seemingly insignificant hobbits, or Rudy for that matter, the church is not naturally heroic or strong. Remember, the disciples were cowards. Mark 14.50 tells us that when Jesus was arrested and led away to be crucified, all of the disciples left him and fled. Peter denied Jesus three times. This is who Jesus chose to build his church. Yet Paul says that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose us because we are weak. We don't rely on our own strength. We're not strong enough on our own, not even close. We're little Gideons fighting with the strangest of weapons. Prayer, singing, eating, drinking. It doesn't seem possible, does it? Gideon had a hard time with it. He needed multiple signs from God before he had the courage to go to battle. Of course, that's why I'm here. I need to be reminded every week that the battle has been won. The bread and the wine is a weekly reminder that Jesus has won. Sin and death have been defeated. Jesus is king. But the game is not quite over, is it? We have some work to do. So here we are. We're here to train, to mature, and to be empowered for this work that we must do. So rejoice and sing out and feast and fellowship because our enemies don't stand a chance. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.